Are you pissing while recording? And that was, uh, yeah, that was why. That was a piss. I mean, yeah, no, it's good one. It's good one. That's right. No, I think, I think, I think, I, I, I think you should create your own currency. I mean, people falling for it. <laughs> On an oil rig. So, welcome everyone to Aife Banga Banga. This week we have an interview with a guest, uh, our third in a series of interviews that we've done with guests. And this week we have Jason Walsh, who is a journalist currently based in France. And we're going to talk to Jason in a bit about uh, the crisis of the media and the general status of the media in politics. Um, but before we get into that uh, specific topic, um, let's get everyone to say hi. So say hi, Alex. Hello. Say hi, Jason. Hello. Welcome, Jason, to the podcast too. And this week we're missing George, our regular, who is um, away on holidays for the moment. Um, so uh, before I introduce Jason formally, let's just talk about what we, or just chat a bit about what we've been thinking about this week. So what have you been thinking about, Alex? Um, I've, uh, I guess what's been preoccupying me has been the, the sheer inconvenience of elections, the real pain in the ass. You know, you're, you're busy reforming the economy. They're trying to really set people free so that they can choose to work several jobs at once, for example, you know, if they want to, um, and really get the economy growing up to up to like the soaring heights of 1%, maybe even 1.5% of GDP per year. And then elections come along and like really kill your buzz. You know what I'm saying? I don't know, Alex. Like, I mean, you know, like the economy is important and like, you know, elections, they are kind of an inconvenience, you know, like on all my kind of world TV channels, I see the little, the little ticker, the little stock ticker at the bottom of the show. And it worries me. Like, well, you know, you, should, you, should, you shouldn't be worried, Philip, because I remember I was reporting for the, um, the Straits Times in Singapore on the uh, French election and uh, on the night of the first round of the election um, after Macron had been declared the winner uh, I walked out onto the streets and saw the people massing and no sorry there was no one in the streets it was completely empty uh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> well now I'm even more I mean, well, so, <laughs> <laughs> well maybe what made me think about this most recently was uh, this week which was uh, in Bill um, a major business journal reported that markets are worried that the 2018 elections may hinder uh, the reform agenda or as they call it here the deforms um and you know lots of there's been conspiracy theories for a little while that you know the 2018 elections won't even happen subsequent to the parliamentary coup of last year and so on like on one level you want to say that this kind of stuff hardly needs a response the kind of reaffirmation of democracy but i think what's interesting is that the argument that you know oh but the markets say can be used by liberals on the left too so i was reminded about this uh, relatively recently because um the left in the, at the time of the UK general election, the left was saying we should totally ignore, screw this thing about what the markets are saying, we should vote for Corbyn anyway, etc. Um, but of course, a lot of the same people at the time of Brexit were going, oh, but, but, but the markets, look at the pound. So there's always like a kind of instrumental um, use of, of the argument that's kind of been like ventriloquizing the markets uh, as a way of making your own political argument. Absolutely, man. Um, and also, I mean, that everything is, everything can be invoked, any kind of conniption, Little dip, 
um, unsustainable boost, uh, peak and trough, anything like that can always be um, can always be invoked to make any particular political point you want at any at any moment in the news cycle. Yeah, no, and I think like even taking into account the the kind of more longer term difficulties of actually having any sort of uh, you know, national developmentalist or social democratic or socialist policies um, in a in the age of globalization, like that's kind of far off. I mean, often with these, with the reactions are like it's a, just a pretty instrumental argument and a short-termist one about the markets well, fluttering on on a short-term change. But that's the strange thing about market economies. I mean, and you know, leaving aside um, what I used to rail against when I was a revolting student, the so-called grand narratives. Uh, I hate people who use the term. I was very anti-postmodern back when these things mattered. But I mean, leaving aside any sort of political questions about socialism and capitalism and, and so on and so forth, uh, the the liberal uh, liberal capitalist side has always argued that market decisions are fundamentally rational. And on a micro level, they really are. I mean, when I go to the cafe and buy a coffee, that's a perfectly rational decision. But what fascinates me is that in aggregate, they become so massively irrational. I genuinely believe we're looking down the barrel of another tech um a, a, a tech crash, or, uh, at least yeah. as serious as the dot-com bubble. And I would be delighted. I would laugh, except it will hurt all of us. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on that on that optimistic note, Jason has introduced himself as the as the soothsayer, the soothsayer of new tech crash. So uh, <laughs> to all of our podcast listeners, uh, make sure you get your stocks and shares out of... No, no, buy them right now and sell them in a month. Oh, <laughs> There you go. So you heard it. You heard it here first. Buy them now and sell later. And that's actually what we're really about. All this politics stuff is just like the kind of superficial, um, the superficial layering on top of what's actually like a, a a sustained deep, a deep market operation into the heart of the. Well, that's that, that's what painting. I assumed when you invited me on. I mean, I woke up this morning. I, I I'm back in Paris now, but I was down in in France Profonde today, deep France, and. Uh, a copy of the New York Times arrived in the post and I opened it up and flicked through it and on page 16 or something there was an article about the, the, the fact that Bitcoin might split and I was just trying to work out does anyone actually know what a Bitcoin is? <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea that this ultimate kind of uh, right-wing libertarian um, phenomenon where they're all kind of obsessed with Bitcoin and the fact that it's um, kind of a currency supposedly beyond the control of the state and now they're all kind of splitting and fissioning like this ridiculous 1970s leftist student union into Maoists and Trotskyists and Stalinists. It's brilliant. Anyway, we don't one of one of one of one of one of my closest one of my closest friends one of my closest friends is a genuine right wing libertarian lunatic. But there you are, lovely chap. Anyway, <laughs> we don't want to blow our cover. So, um, Jason, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, Philip, I've been thinking about jumping off my balcony, but I mean, I think about that every day. Um, <laughs> Don't do it. The Don't do well, it. I won't because it would it, 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 I mean, imagine all the children and the guy that would have to clean it up. I mean, it's really horrible. Um, so apart from that, um, I've been thinking about some stuff I saw on Twitter, which is a perfect representation of real life, as we all know. And uh, isn't just a... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that some of the kind of belligerent fake uh, want to be hard left that aren't really that hard um, kind of people who see themselves as the left wing of Corbynism and I see Corbyn as the uh, vicar of Islington so uh, but you know people who p position themselves as left wing have suddenly decided that uh, they are against Brexit or sorry they're in favor of Brexit and miraculously this happened within 
20 or 30 minutes of Corbyn making one of his kind of vague Eurosceptic statements, much vaguer than he used to make. Um, and I'm just slightly baffled by the left's um, response uh, to Brexit. Now, it does link in slightly to what Alex was just saying previously, but and, and, and we need to be very careful when we speak about the left, because if we're talking about the kind of, you know, the social democratic left or the Guardian left, I mean, they're all, of course, entirely anti-Brexit and believe the Jacques Delors story that Europe will uh, make a, you know, a social Europe and will save Britain from the, uh, the evils of capitalism. But I'm just fascinated that a lot of kind of um, reasonably well-known left-wing commentators have suddenly found themselves converted to, uh, to, to Euroscepticism, and I'm just wondering why they weren't doing this before. It seems to me that one of the only... Um, and I actually don't take a position on Brexit. I'm a, 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 I think it genuinely can be argued both ways, depending on whether or not you want to talk about the primacy of economics or the primacy of politics. But I hate muddied arguments. I think one of the only people who's been very good on it, on the, uh, on, on the social democratic left, has been the uh, economics editor of The Guardian, uh, Larry Elliott, who, who has been a fairly lone voice until recently supporting Brexit. Yeah. Um, but now a lot of kind of young Turks have come out uh, in support of Brexit, and it's not that I agree or disagree with them. I'm just I find them opportunistic. No, right. So I, I mean, I tweeted something about this as well, trying to get my head around it. Um, I mean, this is a short kind of Twitter conversation between like Sam Chris and Ellie Mayo Hagen. Well, I was going to uh, leave the names out of it, Alex, but you know. <laughs> What's that? I was going to leave the names <laughs> out of it, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, but, but this is just an example, you know. We're being friendly here, um, but, uh, but you know, being snide in, in in this sort of way about Remainers um, in a way that would have been really dismissed as kind of right wing Toryism, you know, that kind of presentation of the issue as like, oh, you know, these these fucking Remainers who who are just like uptight and, and sore losers and whatever. Um, now, yeah, they seem to have sort of adopted this discourse themselves, um, and kind of laughing. I mean, kind of imagine someone who's the kind of person who's a, whose primary political identity right now was Remain. Um, well, I, I love like, I love bitter Remainers and I love bitter uh, Leavers as well because I, 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 being cynical, um, I work for the New European at the moment. I, I freelance quite a lot for them and I'm delighted to write for it. And I love partisan newspapers of every stripe. I think they're a fantastic thing. I'm sure this is something we'll come on to later. Um, but I, I, I am just curious as to why the left would suddenly convert itself to something that it has opposed for 20 years. Now, I mean, people like me, I, in fact, I wrote an article in the New European um, last year saying that the left has always been Eurosceptic, but I mean, I, I was referring to the, the sort of Benite left up until, you know, uh, the, the, the new Labour takeover, if you like. Um, but I, I, one of the things that I find slightly curious about it is it's slightly, it, it's somewhat ahistorical. Um, I don't understand why um, we can't have a sincere debate about whether or not uh, Brexit was caused by, for example, ridiculous stories about bendy bananas, fears about immigration, or genuine questions of sovereignty, questions about whether or not you can renationalize industries, questions about whether or not you should renationalize ind industries. Um, I, I don't see a lot of discussion about this, but suddenly. Uh, Everyone seems to turn on a sixpence. They, they they know what the official line is, and and I don't know. Do I'm, I I don't have a fax machine anymore. You didn't so, get the memo. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, my provisional thing about this is that, and this answers some other questions as well about uh, left behavior with regard to Brexit and the media, which is something I guess yeah we'll come on to, is that they kind of feel the wind behind their sails now, and they've hitched their wagon to Corbynism, 
rightly or wrongly. Um, I think I'm. Well, I, I think wrongly because you're definitely more sympathetic to Corbyn, and I will spend the next hour complaining about Corbyn if you want. But even <laughs> gi giving him giving him the benefit of the doubt, I actually think now is a low point for Brexiteers. I think the Remain side is is pushing back quite dramatically, but we shall see. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I think the kind of the Remainers have revealed themselves um, to be. The sort of elitist and anti-democratic. Well, no, I, I, no, 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 no. Sorry, I, I have, I have to interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't even mean that. I mean, I, I recognise those tendencies, but and, and as I say, I'm not advocating for either side here. But I think that the basically, I think the Conservatives have dropped the ball so badly on Brexit that uh, there is a significant chance of not only a fudge on the issue, but a fudge so significant that it will be. Uh, not that big a deal to actually leave the EU. And uh, the joke, that literally the day after Brexit was voted in, I went to the bar across the road from my flat here in Paris, and they were all laughing and saying the British, the joke is the British used to have one foot out of Europe, or one foot in Europe, now they will have one foot out. I think that is possibly what is actually going to happen, and purely yeah, th through the Conservatives' incompetence. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the only kind of pleasure I get out of that is the fact that I made one of the, I love making kind of bold predictions in, in advance of events just so it can be proved wrong, people can laugh at me. Um, and I thought Brexit would, whether the vote, you know, whether the they voted out or in, um, I thought it would end up being a total fudge. You know, if, out, if, they, if the British public did vote out, that it would end up being a fudge in the end. And for a while, it seemed like that wasn't going to be the case. Um, and it seems increasing, as you just said, it's going to be. Um, so, you know, I can be at least happy that I was right and I can repost that tweet and, and Facebook post and point to it and go, look how I was right. You should listen to me in the future. Exactly. So, and and cash your check from, from Mr. McCall. There's, there's another layer of complexity here, though, right? Because um, it really depends what you mean. It really depends what you identify as the central issue in Brexit, which affects how you think of it as a fudge. Um, so if you think of, um, if you take certain vision of um, in free trading Britain that could be like a Hong Kong or Singapore or the North Atlantic, yeah. cut all these deals. The Dan Hannan, the Dan Hannan worldview. Yeah, yeah, the Dan Hannan vision. You know, then you know, then there's the fudge from that point of view. If you take it as an image of um, the possibility of nationalising um, vast ways of the economy. Um, overturning kind of decades of a certain kind of model of how to run the economy, how to run the market, um, that could be a fudge. If you take it that you want to see kind of some decisive shift away from uh, free movement of peoples. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of it's not even even with the, you know, I mean, I think it's quite possible it could be a fudge, but it, in terms of whether or not what counts as a substantive fudge very much depends on what you identify as the core issue of Brexit. Well, I mean, uh, about... from my own point of view um, as a journalist, and I, again, I stress I'm not giving a personal opinion here, um, I think that the vision of nationalisation is um, incohate at the moment. I mean, the, the, the idea of, you know, daily mail smears of Corbyn aside, the idea that the British public are suddenly ready to return to uh, former visions of state socialism, I, I think, is, is, is not the case. I, I think that's an inaccurate rendering of where the British public is. I do take claims of British sovereignty quite seriously. I, I, I'm quite willing to uh, to say that when people say that, they know what they're talking about. Um, but I do think that immigration also played a role. Um, but we've seen, uh, on the day we're recording this, uh, July 27th, we've already seen a fudge on that issue. So I, I, I think it is heading toward... Um, 
a fairly a, a Brexit that will possibly satisfy no one, and presumably the politicians are hoping will not annoy everyone. Uh, I mean, the most likely, were I in charge and were I a civil servant who was committed, uh, whether I liked it or not, to Brexit, I would be pushing for a temporary um, FTA-EEA deal and then see where we stand three or four years down the road. I don't understand why the um, discussions seem to have been mired in, in grandstanding so far. It seems very peculiar to me because I don't... I, I would actually, if, if Corbyn was the Prime Minister and the talks were collapsing, I would understand it because I would believe that they were collapsing over something sincere. But I have great difficulty believing the current administration has serious points of principle to um, to cause problems. Well, you know, we now have two predictions for our listeners. So buy tech stocks and sell within a month. <laughs> and also bet on Brexit being a fudge. But it depends on what kind of fudge you think it is and what you want to bet on, and invest in. Um, so we've got two predictions for you, uh, kind of uh, short to medium-term predictions, um, but we also uh, are going to talk about the media um, and its current status uh, with Jason as our guide and interlocutor. So um, some interesting points about the media coming through in contemporary politics. So in Britain, for the first time that in a generation, certainly within uh, my um, living memory, the Labour Party and the British left can no longer use the media as an excuse, which is an interesting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So in the most recent election, you had what you had the press almost universally um, from centre left to um, the right of the British media came out against Corbyn. Um, and despite that, he managed to win enough support in the country that the that it turned out to be a hung parliament and against all expectations was expecting to be initially expected to be an electoral annihilation of the Labour Party and an overwhelming Tory majority was whittled down to a to a bare majority, which was effectively a hung parliament. So no longer can whatever happens in future with Corbyn's leadership, whether or not Labour wins the next election or anything else. The decisive lesson is that the media don't call the shots and that the Labour Party and the British left can no longer use the media as an excuse for their political failures. On the other side of the Atlantic, in the US, you have this extraordinary um, development where it seems almost as if the media has stepped up to become the official opposition to the president of the Trump presidency, the Trump administration. He's mired in this long war with all kind of aspects of the establishing media, even his allies in um, the Fox News and so on, seem to be grudging or at least willing to attack him from the flank occasionally. Um, and But by the same token, lots of people are talking about this as the golden age, as the golden age for the American media. The Washington Post are famous, have notoriously emblazoned um, on, their, on their masthead that democracy dies in darkness, so that they have this new emphasis and newfound faith and belief in the role of the third estate to hold to account government. Um, and at the same time, um, what's not been reported perhaps widely enough is the fact that as a result of both Brexit and the US election, Hillary's loss, Trump's win, seems to have resulted in a boost to uh, the established media organs, major broadsheets, news, um, news outlets, in terms of their circulation and subscription numbers, 
Um, and that's an interesting development, um, something which wasn't expected and something which hopefully we'll talk about a bit more. And all of that is on top of these structural changes in the media landscape, which are much commented upon and which um, to almost to the point of cliche in terms of the fact that new technologies are transforming the way in which we interact with the media, the way in which we consume the media, that there's unsustainable old business models of the old um, print broadsheets that can't survive in the information age, and that the changing demographics, the way in which millennials interact and consume means that the old media establishment can't survive. Um, hopefully we'll cut through some of those cliches, but setting it up, um, and we've got a superb, a superb interviewee this week, Jason Walsh. So Jason, Jason Walsh is a foreign correspondent currently based in Paris. He's a recent graduate uh, with a PhD in philosophy. Formerly, he was the Ireland correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, which is based in Boston, Massachusetts. But he's also written widely, contributed to a number of different newspapers um, all over the Atlantic, including El Mundo, the Irish Times, the Irish Examiner, the Independent, USA Today, and he also contributes to most recently to the New European. So a uh, warm welcome once again to Jason Walsh, who's been giving us our predictions about where to buy and where to sell. Thank you, Philip. So um, we've got some questions for you. And wanted to begin with this specific issue about the boost. Um, the supposed boost to traditional media organs and broadsheets, the supposed Brexit and Trump effect. Um, can you tell us a bit about? Can you tell us a bit about how you read that as somebody who's on yeah, the other sure. side, as it were? Of... Absolutely. I mean, it's not a supposed boost. It is a very real boost, but within very particular parameters. And for uh, for a start, I would like to separate out Brexit and Trump slightly, uh, just to begin with, because I don't think they're fundamentally the same phenomenon, although they 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 are correlated in some regard. Um, clearly, we have seen the Washington Post and the New York Times engaged in quite a lot of serious journalism. Um, they're clearly unhappy with Trump, and they're working very hard, uh, kind of seeing him as a Nixon figure they want to take down. The result is uh, a new record for subscriptions. Uh, they uh, they've gone past two million uh, digital subscriptions in the in, in in the second quarter of 2017. They have over 3.3. This is the New York Times. 3.3 million subscribers uh, in total, doubling the base over the last two years. You know, same true of the Washington Post. These are real phenomena. I would say to you, however, that the Washington Post and the New York Times are not the only newspapers in America, and therein lies the problem. Um, the American newspaper landscape is significantly different from that of, of smaller countries like Britain, France, Ireland, Portugal, whatever you like, um, precisely because it's, it's, it's practically a continent in its own right. And, you know, in the sort of early industrial era, it was not, it was simply not possible to print a national newspaper. That's why America only had one national newspaper from 1908 until 1982, the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, in 1982, USA Today was launched, and that was the first, um, uh, or sorry, the second national newspaper to be launched in the States. Now, you can argue, and argue coherently and sensibly, that the Washington Post and New York Times are both national newspapers now. But their, their names belie the fact that they have their roots in regional and local journalism. I doubt the Trump boost is helping other great newspapers uh, like the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Orange County Register. Uh, we've seen in the last uh, 
half-decade the Los Angeles Times, which at one point fought with the New York Times for both prestige and circulation. Um, and it's, I, I hope, doing very well. I haven't looked at any figures recently, um, but it's gone through a very fallow period. Um, so, you know, the centralization of American news in, these, in the hands of these two newspapers um, is not a good thing for the American news landscape, as it were. But there is no denying that, that, that Trump is important to these newspapers and that opposition to Trump has uh, created a significant fillip for both of them. And why shouldn't when, it? When you, say, when you say that, so do you mean that it's their campaign against, you know, they're kind of, like you say, the kind of... Um, that they're both um, seeking to overthrow him. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to seeking, saying, say seeking to overthrow him. I'm, and, I'm, and I should point out, I'm not terribly concerned with whatever nonsense they publish on the opinion pages. I mean, that is really, you know, you could go and squeeze a, an adolescent's acne and then just rub it together and you would have the opinion pages. What matters is actually the... <laughs> no, but what I, no, but what I meant, what I was going to say was, do you think the booster subscription is a result of a kind of um, renewed yes, because general I, interest, or is it specifically support for their political positions against the administration? I don't think it matters, and I think the distinction, while uh, certainly extant, is a very fine sort of Jesuitical point. What I'm saying is that in political times, politics matters, and in apolitical times, politics does not matter. And... If you want to, in uh, January 2018, buy my book, Fake News, Public Understanding and the Crisis in Journalism, um, formerly called... Uh, 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 is, pop, that, pop. is that another prediction, like the tech stocks or like... Uh, you know, that, I can genuinely tell you that my book, uh, uh, my, my book, Fake News, Public Understanding and the Crisis in Journalism, will be published in January 2018 <laughs> by Imprint Academic, formerly called... Poor Jason, uh, We've had to let him plug his own book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't like the fake news term, but, you know, I have to sell a few copies. Previously, it was called Popular Epistemology and the uh, Politics of Journalism. But my point in the book <laughs> yeah, is... Fake, 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 fake news is much, much better title, yeah. No, it's Go not. No, no, Popular Epistemology <laughs> is much better. I invented that term, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good term. It's a good term. But I mean, if you're looking to sell, if you're looking to sell, you know, go with fake news. The Hashtag fake news. I have never sought to sell anything and I have never thought about my readers or concerned myself with what the audience want. The people will read what I tell them to read. And if they don't read it, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, the problem, you know, the, the, the challenges of new technology have been talked about quite dramatically, you know, quite significantly in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, the late uh, David Carr of uh, the, the, the media columnist in the New York Times said that despite all the fuss about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, despite all the fuss about websites, when news organizations want to see the green paper, they print the white paper. And his point was that um, we've overstated the importance of online media. That's one view. The other view, of course, is that um, print newspapers are a purely legacy institution. Uh, online will take over everything. What I'm saying is that those arguments, while interesting, um, are not really the point. The, the, the newspaper is a universal document. Uh, it, it is the literal opposite of a magazine. A magazine, if you go into a, a, a large news agent, you will see magazines dedicated to politics, aimed at politics nerds, kind of weird people. Uh, you will see magazines dedicated to carp fishing, wood turning, uh, women's glossies um, of all kinds of uh, sort of levels, ABC1, CDE2, 3. You will see uh, not only 
magazines dedicated to computer games, but magazines dedicated to old computer games that were published 20 years ago. That's because the magazine is a particularist document. It is aimed at you personally and the cohort of people like you who share an interest. That is not what a newspaper is for. The newspaper is a universal document. You get up in the morning and your butler irons the times for you, or however it is you receive your newspapers, I don't know. I mean, France is a little bit old-fashioned, so that's what happens here. And you try and understand the world through what is being told to you. The newspaper is a representation of the world. It is, of course, fabricated in both senses. It is made up. I don't mean lying. I don't mean that it's lying, but I mean that it's fabricated in the sense that every news story has to be constructed. These are actually invented, made things. And second, I mean it's fabricated in the industrial sense because no journalist publishes whatever the hell they want whenever the hell they feel like it. It goes through an industrial process of sub-editing, editing, publishing and so on. But the, the objective is that you as a public citizen need to orient yourself in the world and therefore you read the news because it matters to you whether or not there is a war in Crimea and you can talk about the Crimean War or you can talk about the current situation in Crimea, it doesn't matter. That declined quite dramatically in at the end of the 20th century. One of the things that was very interesting about uh, the crisis in newspapers was that the financial newspapers, newspapers like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, were not affected because the people who read those newspapers are literally financially invested in the world. The problem is that the rest of us are supposed to be socially invested in the world and that is why we need news. Yeah, so I mean, I, but I feel like I need I guess a button. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Most importantly, I need somebody to iron my newspaper before it's delivered to me. Well, I mean, you don't um, want to get the ink on your the, hands. Um, well, this, but this is a whole new perspective on like automate automation and like new technologies. Because if we could automate the process of ironing my newspaper, that would like save me the need of needing to have a buttoner. Man, I didn't even know this was a thing. And I, part of the reason I've always disliked physical newspapers is precisely having ink on my hands, which is another reason I don't like. You, know, should, you, should, read, you, you, should, you should read the Daily Mail then, um, Alex. Oh my God, the, Alex. Yeah, like what? The Daily Mail has a special non-oil-based ink that does not come off in your I am not making this up. This is excellent. This is great news. I mean, I, I'm not going to read the Daily Mail. You're a natural, um, you're a natural Daily Mail reader. There you go, Alex. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it'll be of great use to me living in Brazil as well. But um, no, but I mean, I guess the thing about about these top newspapers still surviving despite the the wider sort of crisis is, I mean, a phenomenon which happens, I guess, with many technological changes, which is that the middle part of the market falls out, and so the bottom remains, and and the end of the market um, is able to persist, but uh, but the middle bit of the market falls out, and I guess, I guess what you're saying, Jason, is there's a problem with that, right? That um, I think that I, I, I think that's exactly the problem. And I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in an analogy, uh, but by way of analogy, I would say that the I don't like superhero movies, okay? And I think that uh, we see too many superhero movies now. I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that um, we still get art movies and we get superhero movies, but the entire middle, the the the, the, the succulent middle of the movie market has been destroyed. And I, I think that is yeah. that it is what has happened also with newspapers. But I mean, politics, you know is fundamentally a question of who rules. All political questions come down to who rules. You know, is it an oligarchy? Is it an autocracy? Is it a democracy? And so on and so forth. In a, in, in a democracy, representative or, you know, in, in some kind of Athenian sense, you rule, we rule, I rule, you know. And in order to rule, you need to know. 
A newspaper is a document for someone who needs to know. If you don't need to know anything, if you lead a privatized life where you go to work and you have a nice job and you talk to your friends and work and then you come home and you see your partner and you go out for a nice dinner, you don't really need news. It's a complete irrelevance. Sounds, sounds, sounds quite nice, I was going to say, particularly if you've got a butler as well. That sounds great. Well, I think you should vote for Macron. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to so I wanted to, you had some great points there about the US, and I wondered if you could maybe um, talk a bit about the kind of Brexit bump to newspapers as well, because from my understanding, it's not just um, a boost to subscription of major broadsheets, um, but also even, um, even the magazines, the political magazines. So the Spectator, the New Statesman, apparently have also seen significant um, boosts to their subscription figures yeah. um, over the last kind of 18 months or so. And, you know, that's because for the be first like time for the first time in my adult life, uh, well, that's an exaggeration, but in the, well, no, no, not, not my adult life, not, not for the first time in my life. I mean, you can tell from my accent I'm Irish and I grew up during the uh, waning years of the conflict in Ireland. I remember the miners' strikes uh, as well and the poll tax riots and so on. But, I mean, since the end of the Thatcher era, nothing has really mattered that much in British politics, right? Brexit matters. Brexit really matters. It doesn't matter which side of the fence you come down on, whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer. It doesn't matter whether you're a soft Brexiteer or a hard Brexiteer, a soft Remainer or a hard Remainer, any of these kind of uh, allegiances that you wish to subscribe to. Brexit matters. It's, it's, it's a sea change in British politics, and that really matters. Because it matters, people are interested in political issues, so we see an increase in subscriptions to political magazines. The New Statesman, The Spectator has always been reasonably profitable. New Statesman was nicknamed, you know, famously the Staggers because it staggers from crisis to crisis. It has never been profitable. Well, in the last couple of years, it's managed to turn that around pretty well. Um, it started before Brexit. Their online strategy has been quite good. Um, but also, Brexit has clearly transformed the British political landscape. There's a lot up for grabs now whether or not you want to force the hardest of hard Brexits or stop Brexit altogether. And that political argument engages people, it engages them with the news, it engages them with the world around them, it engages them with their social world, and that is what is absolutely central. In order to be a public citizen, you need to understand the world you exist in. This is why I defend Sorry. partisan newspapers. Um, for example, the New European, as the, as the editor, Matt Kelly, has pointed out on numerous occasions, he founded it in a dudgeon. He founded it, he was angry at Brexit, so he founded a newspaper. If he had founded a website, no one would have cared. You know, it's really important that um, someone felt severely and, 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 and discommoded and strongly motivated to do something, and he found an audience for it as a result. So this is an interesting question in light of, uh, in light of these changes and in light of interest in politics. That um, So one interesting piece was actually in BuzzFeed, which tells its own story, um, showing how newspapers lost their monopoly on setting the political agenda. Uh, and this was at the time of the, right after the UK general election. And so it gives us several of examples that uh, of independent media websites, which are hyper, supposedly hyper-partisan websites, which actually were able to set the political agenda. And I think it gives the example that uh, this story of uh, the conservatives w wanting to repeal the ban on ivory trading, which was uh, originally came out in Evolve Politics. And there's evidence that a significant bit of the population actually were aware of this issue, despite the fact that story was not covered at all in the world of, uh, of, of formal political websites and mainstream media. So, I mean, is that, a, is that a potential alternative? I mean, are we okay with a situation in which uh, people increasingly get their news and the political agenda is set by much more marginal and partisan yeah, well, I'm, websites I'm, rather than newspapers? I'm not perturbed by it. I mean, I don't care if people read um, 
Breitbart, you know, or the Canary uh, on the on on the right and left. That's fine. I still think there is a place for the attempt for uh, of people like me to to try and be objective about issues. And, and objectivity, by the way, doesn't mean having no personal opinion. It simply means withdrawing from your personal opinion, stepping back, um, uh, and trying to describe what you see, what you hear, what you find out. I think that the role of of impartial, uh, or, or at least attempting for the normative ideal of impartial journalism is not particularly under threat, or at least it wouldn't be if journalists would stop saying there's no such thing or it's not possible. Um, but, you know, I have no problem with the partisan media. The media was always partisan. It was partisan when it began. It's only in the 20th century that the media even attempted to present itself as disinterested and uh, standing above commerce and news and, and, and all of the things that go on in human society. That's a relatively recent idea. Um, before that, all of journalism was kind of scurrilous muckraking. Um, and the problem I have with people who say that an argument, you know, uh, changes minds, I mean, that famous Sun front page from uh, 1992, it was the Sun what won it, was not only wrong, it was the most misguided uh, headline in, in, in British press history. First of all, it wasn't true. The Sun didn't win it. And it has given people who hate the sun uh, an excuse to sort of bash Murdoch and the sun for two decades, uh, and two and a half decades since. Uh, but it, it severely overstates the importance of the press in, in, in changing people's minds. I mean, the, for example, Alex, I'll, I'll put this question directly to you, and I want a yes or no answer. Have you ever had a discussion? Yes. Have you ever... That it? That's it, yes. Have you, have you converted every person you have ever spoken to? No, no. No, you see. No, people are so ignorant, they don't know their Bible. Ecclesiastes 11. Phil's the only holdout. Phil's the only holdout. Everyone else is <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, Ecclesiastes 11. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. And that is what you do. Even if you're not a reporter like me, you're an opinion journalist, you put your, your view out there and you, you hope that it reaches someone or some people. But you do not have this media effects theory idea that you can bend and warp people's minds is simply not true. And it is demonstrably not true. The right. I mean, I think this, this is the thing. I, the idea of brainwashing, I mean, I'm really hostile to that idea. And it's always made from a losing position. Uh, and it's an excuse yeah. for unable That's to convince really people. I think. Yeah. And so I, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I really reject that idea that the media brainwashes people. However, I am a believer in the idea of agenda setting and framing and that these ideas are important because yes, the media but... can, to a certain extent, tell people or set the agenda of what it is that you should be thinking okay. about. It won't yeah. tell you what that's, to think about that's, it. That's not unfair, and I don't think there's a problem with agenda setting and framing. I would say it to you, say it to you this way. If you live in, uh, in, in Britain, you can buy a range of newspapers from the... Uh, Daily Mail and Daily Express on on the right, right across to, and I'm speak. I'm not going to talk about weirdo anarchist papers like Freedom. I'm just talking about the mainstream press. You can buy from right across on the right uh, to the Morning Star, which is effectively the Communist Party of Britain's newspaper. These are available in basically every news agent in Britain. In France, you can buy everything from Le Figaro on the conservative haute bourgeois uh, to uh, l'Humanité, the Communist Party newspaper. That's a very wide range of of, of news, views, and opinion that you can consume. If there is not a newspaper that is framing the view that you personally subscribe to, that's your fault and it's your problem and it's your responsibility to create that newspaper and you have not won the argument. So the reason that Freedom, the anarchist newspaper, had to close down a couple of years ago is because not enough people are anarchists. Well, not enough people are anarchists because anarchists haven't won the argument. If they had won the argument, their newspaper would be outselling everything else. The, the media 
is able to frame debates and say, oh, this chap is, is a reasonable chap or this chap is not a reasonable chap, as we've seen with Jeremy Corbyn. That seems to have been the main debate before the election. But if you don't agree with it, the onus is on you to change that. You have to win the argument. You can't just complain from a position of having lost. And this is what okay. was fascinating. This is what, sorry, the one thing is, is that what was fascinating about the recent UK general election is that previous to it, the argument that the big media sets the agenda uh, and that the, it's the big media who sets, who effectively determines outcomes was true until it wasn't, which is to say that it was true while it, that Murdoch, that what murdered until until actually some politics emerged, and then it was the case that it wasn't anymore, and that alternative media outlets, uh, that that small websites, that partisan websites, were suddenly setting the agenda, yeah. and that wasn't because of a change at the communicative level. It's because there was actual politics happening, which spoke. Well, to that, that that's what I think. I mean, the argument that those I presume to speak on behalf of those small websites. Um, uh, the argument they, I'm, I'm sure they would say to you is it's a change from teleology to technological determinism. They probably wouldn't put it in those terms, but they would say, oh, the internet, the networked society has, has changed everything. Well, that's as may be, and it's very interesting, and we can talk about it some other time. But what I would say to you is that, in fact, the media never had that power in the first place. Um, uh, journalists drunk on their own self-importance might have thought so, uh, but they, they, they really weren't changing opinion quite so radically. Well, this is, so this is something I wanted to, to kind of to make sure that we lock down then. So what's emerging from the discussion? So I mean, the, you know, the line up until now, until this kind of uh, boost to traditional media organs that we've just been chatting about happened, the line has been that new forms of technology, new demographics, kind of structural changes in the way in which the media is produced and consumed have overwhelmed the traditional model. Um, so how are we, so are we, I just want to be clear about um, what both both of you are saying, but particularly you, Jason. So are you saying that the new kind of political interest, renewed interest in politics because politics matters in a way that it didn't before, Will that, is that what is going, it's going to be enduring? It's not just a kind of another blip in the decline of the traditional media. I don't know that it's going to be enduring or not, but that is precisely what I'm saying. Politics matters for the first time in a generation, and that is why people care. That is why people are engaged to the degree they are. Interestingly, I think it was Alex earlier said that uh, Fox News was cheerleading for Trump and had suddenly started to sort of bite at him a little bit. Fox News hated Trump during the entire primary process. Uh, Fox News was completely opposed to Trump's nomination and was very, very hard on Trump. Um, it was only when Trump was the only Republican left standing that they supported him. And that tells you everything you need to know about the media. Um, they, they, they make predictions, certainly, but they follow where the public is. They try to predict where the public is going to be. They do not change the public. So as long as, so, I mean, the... As long as politics Soviets. continues to matter, people will continue to consume information, news. And remember what the word news means. People don't know what the word news means. You know, do, do you know what the word news means? You know, it's a plural of new, right? <laughs> I mean, this is such a, like a basic point. People will, will, will consume new information as long as that information is relevant to their lives. And if politics is completely high-handed, it's out of your control, it doesn't really matter, and you just want to watch location, 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 and see if you can get another buy-to-let flat, well, then you're not going to pay attention to the news, other than perhaps the mortgage rates. But as long as, as there is a political battle in society, whether it's whether or not Donald Trump is fit to be president, whether or not Brexit is a good or a bad thing, whether or not Brazil should split in half, 
whether or not Russia is the you know Brazil is Brazil is going to split in half. What? That's not there. <laughs> <laughs> these grand issues, if you like, as long as these things matter to our lives, we will consume information and news, and and we will we will seek to collect knowledge and use it to understand our own existence and our relations with other people. Okay, so okay, before so we but before we move on, let's be precise here. So. Um, you're you're making the case for like a traditional model of the citizen in the kind of modern political system, the modern democratic system, the citizen who, if they have any kind of stake in being an individual human being who's interested in some kind of control over their lives, to, to that extent, they'll consume news and they'll be interested in politics. And you're saying that this is more important than these kinds of technological changes. So then what would you, if, if we want to go with that, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to go with that, but then what, is, then what is the genuine changes that have been brought about by technological shifts oh, well, the in media journalism? Yeah, I mean, you're quite correct. I am Immanuel Kant. You, you have outed me. Um, <laughs> I think I think so, I, yeah, yeah, I think someone, so, yeah, yeah. I was going to say so, someone shouted that. I was walking down the street and someone shouted that at me, and I thought you're you're quite right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but yes, that is my view. Now, I don't want to underplay the technological change. Um, when I was, as I say, a revolting student, when I was a a young leftist, I completely rejected the idea of technological determinism because it was kind of against my idea of how the public citizen operated and so on and so forth. I actually think. That was a, a mistake on my part, and the te technological change does have a, 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 a very significant impact on how we behave and how we uh, how, how we live our lives. So, but what I would say in response to that is that the death and the looming death, and it will come, you know, not tomorrow, but it will come, the looming death of the printed newspaper that I like having right in front of me. I mean, in my eyeline right now, I have copies of. The New European, The Guardian, Liberation, Humanité, Le Figaro, The Financial Times, Handelsblatt, The Catholic Herald, The Catholic Times, The Christian Science Monitor, The Jewish Magazine Tablet, The Catholic Magazine The Tablet, um, a whole bunch of left and right wing newspapers. My, my, my house, I could build furniture out of the print newspapers that I have strewn around the place. So I clearly love these things and I make no apology for it. Uh, I even have, you know, the Christian Science Monitor doesn't even exist in print anymore, and I still have my, my old archive of it. So, despite being a print fetishist, I don't think the death of the print medium is the end of the world. I think there is something important about sitting down at the breakfast table in the morning and leafing through the newspaper and seeing what the editors have selected for you to tell you what they think is important about the world. I don't think the internet is good at that. I think there are problems with how we read online. We, we, we tend to narrow cast and focus in on things that personally interest us. Um, and, you know, increasingly we see the use of algorithms that artific so-called artificial intelligence, although that's a ridiculously overstated term um, for algorithms based on your preferences. Um, so, you know, that I, I do think there is a problem with the narrowing of news online and sort of the, the narrow focus on our personal lives, which turns what I consider, as I said earlier, the universal document of the newspaper into the personal document of the magazine. But leaving all that aside, I think the, the newspaper form can survive the death of print. I think the technological change, while dramatic and serious and important and not yet fully played out, and I'm not willing to go out on a limb and say how it will play out, um, 
I don't think that changes our relationship as either human beings or citizens to the world we inhabit. Okay, but I mean, that's from the more of the consumer side of things, but from the producer side, I mean, there actually are questions about the economics of newspapers or of, of news making. Um, yes, but however, we should just cut off all the sponsors, you know, like let them go, cut off the people who won't pay, let them read whatever is available for free, have some confidence in your own value. I, I kind of, I mean, I, I agree with that as a, as a principle, whether it happens or not is a question. And I think the effect, I mean, this is, this is a sort of, well, let me put it. Let me, let me give you. Let me, let me give you a serious example. Let me give you. Just one, uh, uh, sorry, I don't mean to. Well, I do mean to interrupt you. I clearly mean to. <laughs> you just did. Yes. Go ahead. Look at the New European, okay? And I, I'm not shilling for this newspaper, but it, ha it has a circulation of twenty to thirty thousand editions. If that was online and that all of that newspaper was available for free online, how many do you think they would sell? Very few. So they are saying, whether it's online or in print, they're saying, if you want to read this, you can damn well pay for it. And why the mainstream, you know, the, 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 the big newspapers uh, fell for this notion that information wants to be free, which is a misquote, of course, um, is the big question. And of course, the answer is they wanted to kill their competition. Uh, when The Guardian decided that they were going to go all in with a free uh, news strategy, they were trying to destroy the independent, which they did successfully. Unfortunately, they destroyed themselves in the process. Um, you know, I think... You have to understand that the news gathering process costs money. We can all sit and pontificate and, and write our opinions for free. It costs nothing. Um, you can do it after work. You can have a blog, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's you know from the viewpoint of self-expression, or in the, in a few cases, um, some people genuinely have some very interesting insights. But news gathering from distant lands that people probably don't care about, but they really should. You know, reading about what's going on in Tunisia now. Do you know what's going on in Tunisia now? Uh, you've probably heard a lot about. Um, other parts of the Middle East in, in, in recent days, uh, whether or not it was Israel or the Palestinian Authority that cut off the electricity to Gaza, questions like that. But I mean, if you want to know about the world, it's going to cost money. You cannot create a communist utopia within capitalism and the sort of pseudo-libertarian everything... Whoa, 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 whoa. Who is talking about <laughs> communist utopia? Well, I think that the, uh, the, the libertarians and the communists are, are, are surprisingly close together because <laughs> the, the whole argument that information wants to be free, and again, I say that as a misquote or as a partial quote because the next part is information wants to be expensive, um, which takes me back to my argument about the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, but leaving, leaving that aside for now... Um, is similar to the argument for universal basic income, these kinds of things. The idea is that we have a problem in society and we're going to solve it by making everything free. The problem is you make it free at the cost of destroying people's livelihoods. So within a, within a market economy, you cannot have news for free. You just can't. You're going to pay for it one way or the other. Okay, let me roll back and, and dig a little bit deeper about this question of how we consume news and the sort of dialectical process between newspapers becoming cheaper, cutting back on the reporting, and how people then come to understand the world. And I think, Jason, you've mentioned something to this effect to me before, and I think what captures this best, just I've never spoken to you before is, in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Good to meet you, Mr. Walsh. Um, is, is the, uh, we can drop that pretense. The short film that Adam Curtis did for, I think, Charlie Brooker's show, uh, where he talks about the rise of Odeerism, as he calls it, which is the most snappy way of, of terming it. But what it refers to is this idea that because we don't read the news and we don't have the steady drip drip of little bits of information, which might be kind of boring, but on a whole range of issues in a, in a universal sense that you described, Jason, 
you gain, you come to gate to create a picture of the world and its dynamics, um, high and low, wide and narrow, and so on. Uh, but without that, you have famine happening in Somalia, and suddenly you go, oh shit, there's a famine in Hampi. Somebody do something. This is horrible. And you have this very emotional um, and hyperactive reaction to it. Whereas if you would had been reading the news, steady drip of news which would have created a picture which would have led you not to have such a hysterical reaction to the Somali famine but to have understood where it came from yeah. and have maybe even foreseen it uh, and as a consequence it leads you to engage in politics and have an understanding of politics which you know has all those bits of politics which can be boring but are essential of, of organization of movement building of of creating a program policies and so on rather than this hysterical reaction somebody do something now um, because events just seem to appear out of the ether rather than being created through long processes there are two ways of of of, of responding to it i mean one is the kind of cynical smart ass remark which is you know i'm sitting here surrounded by i have in front of me the king james bible i have the talmud i have uh, the complete works of shakespeare i have goethe uh, I have, you know, more modern stuff, Umberto Eco, whatever you like. I can't make you read do you, that. Do, I, do, do, you have, do, you, do you have the Quran? Uh, I actually do. I, I do indeed. Um, I ha- okay, good, good, good. Just yeah. checking. Just and, checking. I, and I have interpretations of the Quran. And, uh, <laughs> but I don't know if any of them are true. I just, but, I, just want to, I just want to check that, you know, you've got like the full kind of uh, multicultural. Gamut, yeah. Well, well I, I'm afraid I don't because I have very little on Eastern uh, religion. But my point is... Um, <laughs> I can't make you read those things. I, I think you should, but I can't. I can't. You know, I, I, you're not. You're not. It's not foie gras we're making here. I can't force this stuff down your throat, and I don't really care if you believe a word of it or don't believe a word of it. But I think that it's important to, if you're going to consider yourself a, a public citizen, to have some understanding of of you know classical philosophy, to have some understanding of of. You know, I mean, for example, at the minute I find myself reading a lot of kind of Chinese uh, Confucian stuff because it's completely alien to me, but it's very important in human civilization. I think we should understand this stuff. Now, okay, you can say, look, people don't have the time for this, and that's true, they don't, um, and, and why should they? That's my cynical answer. I can't force you to read the news every day. You know, I, all I can do is, as I said, Ecclesiastes, cast my bread upon the water. But the, the less cynical answer is, yeah, I agree with you, and news has become... Uh, bitty. Um, we, we hear that there's been a coup in Turkey. This was last year. We don't know why, because we haven't really been paying any attention to Turkey for the last five years. Well, we probably should have been paying attention to Turkey. Um, I, I would simply say that the news media is and has never cl- is a representation of the world. It has never claimed, never claimed to be a perfect representation of the world. But if you read a good newspaper every day, you will receive a better education than you would at most universities. Um, And I think it is incumbent upon you as a public citizen, if you see yourself as a public citizen, to actually do this. And one of the problems with the disintermediation of the internet is that the onus falls upon you individually and personally to collate this information or curate, as people insist on calling it today, whereas before someone would make a decision saying, well, this is what you need to know about today. This is, you know, and maybe they were wrong. Maybe they made mistakes. Sometimes they even print things that were untrue. But I I, I think that the vehicle for consuming more than mere information, consuming news that would become knowledge that you would use to understand things is very important. And you have to understand the industrial process of of a journalist. You know, why does a journalist have a beat? Why is it that 
you stay on the police beat for two years, or you stay on the, the in my case, the, the Dublin beat for you know seven years or eight years, you go on to the Paris beat. Well, you have a beat because of repetition, um, because the process of repetition, of constantly reporting on the same people, the same things, the same, you know, the same but different every time, that is actually what builds knowledge because you start to compare things in your own head. You start to think about what this means in relation to something that happened a year ago, a month ago, a decade ago, and so on. And that is how the process of human knowledge is created. And I, I, I urge you all to go out and buy a newspaper <laughs> every day. Hey, everyone. This is Alex. Jason was such an interesting guest this week that we held back a little bit of the content and we're putting it out as a bonus episode called 14biz, in which Jason talks to us a bit more about the crisis in the media, as well as about the impact of Macron's election in France, seeing as he's stationed there and knows a little bit about it. Check it out. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.